a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. In October 1951, and I know that's ancient history for most of you, but I was alive then. I was five years old. But something happened that year in our country that turned out to be pretty earth-shaking when we look back on it. Here's what happened. The CBS television network aired the first episode of a new television show. Turned out to be incredibly popular. And it, we realize now, looking back on it, it was one of the pioneer programs of the kind of television programming that changed television forever. The name of that program was, can you guess? If you're older, you might be able to guess. I Love Lucy. <laughs> and it starred Lucille Ball and the man who was her actual husband at the time, Desi Arnaz. Sadly, a few years later, they were divorced, but when they started the program, they were married. And I Love Lucy was one of the most watched television programs in the United States. In fact, it was the most watched television program in the United States for four out of its six seasons. It ended its run in 1957, and it was still at the top in the Nielsen ratings. Our family, when I was a kid, was just like most other families all across the country. We never missed an episode. And we always laughed till it hurt at the antics of this crazy redhead who went by the name of Lucy Ricardo on the show. I was 11 years old at the time when the final episode aired. But of course, we kept watching it because it had reruns for years and years after that. And we laughed at the reruns just as much as we had the original. Well, occasionally in that early version of what we now call a sitcom, the script would call for a camera shot of their bedroom. But the people at CBS were very, very cautious about those scenes. And CBS decided that episodes that included a shot of their bedroom needed to always show two twin beds, never a single double bed. Because in the early 1950s, it was considered by the people at CBS to just be a little too scandalous to even imply that a married couple might actually share one bed. <laughs> even though Lucy and Desi really were married in real life at the time. They were not just actors on the show. Of course, they were a married couple on the show as well. Not only that, but in 1952, when Lucy got pregnant in real life, they decided to write that pregnancy into the script of the program. But CBS, again, they thought that through and they decided, you know what? We better not use the word pregnant. The word pregnant was considered to be just a little too risque for most people at the time. So instead of saying Lucy is pregnant, they said Lucy is expecting. They thought that would be less offensive to the sensibilities of the viewing audience. It's hard to imagine that now, isn't it? I mean, that seems so far away, so foreign to us now. It seems kind of funny, maybe silly. <laughs> 70 years makes quite a difference, doesn't it? All right, here we are. 70 years later, now we're living in a time when our television, and of course now we have the internet, and just culture in general, it's all, it seems like, super saturated with sex. And a lot of it is very, very explicit sex. And for the past few decades, we've been going through what I believe is rightly called a sexual revolution. And there are things now that at one point in time, everybody recognized to be sexual sin. But now, 
These things are considered fine. They're totally acceptable, even good. And we're told by secular thinking people anyway, and people who are supposed to be experts at this sort of thing. <laughs> they're not biblical experts, of course. They're secular experts. But they're to we're told, you know, we just have to accept the sexual desires of others as good and normal, part of their identity if they feel that's, if that's the case. Even if, according to the Bible, their behavior is what God calls sinful. So if we as Christians say their desires and their behaviors are not pleasing to God, to them it sounds like hatred and bigotry of some kind. I go into this in a lot more detail in some studies I did recently on Romans chapter 1. If you've not seen those and you'd like to watch them, you can find them at AboundingJoy.com. And if you need help finding them, I'll be glad to send you a link. But we need to be aware of these things. Anyway, here we are today and a large part of the national media a large part of our educational system, a large part of the political landscape, many, many Hollywood celebrities, almost all of them, not, not quite all of them, but many of them are definitely on board with this sexual revolution. And the revolution has become so successful and this very, very anti-biblical thinking has become so prevalent that if you, as a biblical Christian, make up your mind, you're going to just agree with what God says in his word, that you're going to stand with scripture, people will be out there who will be willing to shame you for that and maybe avoid you for that, maybe try to shut you up because you agree with what God says in the Bible. Now, let's think about this a little bit more. None of us wants to be called a bigot, do we? I don't. None of us want to be called bad names. We don't want to be called hateful. We don't want to be thought of as unloving. We want to be loving people, don't we? So one of the side effects of living in our sexually hypercharged culture that we're in now is that many people, and I'm talking about people now who call themselves Christians. Some of them call themselves evangelical Bible-believing Christians. At least they call themselves that. But they develop a kind of, I don't know, you might call it live and let live attitude. There are many Christians today who are being tempted to kind of just go along with the secular humanists, just agree with them. This, by the way, what the secular humanists will tend to say almost all the time is, hey, if it's not hurting anybody, there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay. We're not hurting anybody. We must not be judgmental to people who are doing things that they feel like are okay if they're not hurting anybody. And they think like this. They think, okay, if you get hungry for food, what do you do? You go get something to eat, right? You eat food. Nothing wrong with that. And they say, well, in the same way, if you're hungry for sex, you need to go have some sex. Nothing wrong with that in their minds. Because in their minds, it's just natural animal drives, animal instincts. We all have them. We all have these hungers. We have these drives. And we should not deny ourselves. And they'll say, besides, it's nobody else's business, is it? If you want to have sex, go have sex. Just make sure you're not hurting anybody else. That's their mantra. So many of us have decided that the most loving thing we can do these days is just say, okay, okay, okay. And we'll just accept whatever sexual and gender feelings people have about themselves. Whatever behavior they claim to be just, is just part of their identity. Because to call a behavior sin, just because God calls it a sin, in the Bible now, <laughs> we're talking about, to some people, though, that's unloving, and we don't want to be thought of as unloving, so we tend to not want to touch this. 
We just hope it'll go away. We hope we won't have to deal with it. We hope we won't have to take a stand. But that's not an option for us. But unfortunately, that's pretty much where we are today. There are many, many people struggling with this. Now, I need to add, guys, and you need to be aware of this. Please think with me. There are some very serious flaws in that kind of thinking. One flaw in that kind of thinking, and I'm talking about the kind of thinking the sexual, sexual revolutionists are doing, you know, is, is the fact that they want to redefine the meaning of love. And if we're not careful, we Christians will let them get by with that. Because a lot of Christians like to define love this way too. Love is a positive word, right? We like the, like the word love. That's important to all of us. We all love to love and we love to be thought of as loving people. And, and we want to be people who do love other people. But listen very carefully now. Don't miss this. Love is a lot more than just having positive feelings towards someone. Love is a lot more than just kind of agreeing with what people want to hear us say. Love, true love, biblical love, knows that God's way is best. And true biblical love knows that what we, what we really want. In fact, if you think of it, even non-biblical love ought to be this way. We want what's best for other people, right? Not just what makes them feel good at the moment. What's best for them in the long run. At the most fundamental level, we want what's best for people. Well, God teaches us what's best for people in his word. He teaches us what real love is. He teaches us how to love people. And included in that is what sin is all about. Because God teaches us in his word that there is much sin in the world. There are many, many people who are choosing to sin. And that sinful behavior will have a bad outcome. In the long run, it always has a bad outcome. Sin hurts people. God reveals that to us in his word. In the long run, it always hurts people. And the truth is, most of the time, we can look at the results of sin, if we're willing to see it in the long run, through history. But it's never, guys, please stay with me here. It's never loving to encourage somebody to continue in sin, no matter how strongly they may think this is just who I am. you got to accept me for who I am. And by that, they mean you have to accept my behavior. And they may strongly identify with it. And they say, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, they'll say. But it's not love to go along with that. There's another flaw in the thinking of the sexual revolutionists. I've kind of alluded to it already, I guess. But, and that's to think that we can figure out what the outcome of our behavior will be. In other words, when we say, or when the secularists say, do anything you want to do as long as you're not hurting anybody, the problem with that, the flaw in that, is that many times we can't tell whether our behavior is hurting anybody else or not. Not in the long run. It's hard to tell. Now, sometimes we can. Sometimes it's obvious when we sin, we're hurting other people. But sometimes it's not so obvious. And many times that decision about whether or not it's hurting anybody else turns out to be a lot more complicated than we're able to figure out on our own. You might say it's above our pay grade. <laughs> that's why God gave us his word, you see. At least that's one of the reasons he gave us his word, the Bible. He revealed truth to us. He does continue to reveal truth to us in his word, not in our imaginations, in his word. And it turns out that without the truth of God's word to enlighten us, we will not be able to figure everything out. It's much too complicated. 
these kind of sinful decisions turn out to have lots of unintended consequences in the long run. All kinds of people who've chosen to indulge in different kinds of sexual sin have ended up with some very tragic outcomes in the long run. And they say, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Why didn't they see it coming? Because they ignored God's word. They weren't interested in what God had to say in the first place. They wanted to do things that they felt like were okay for them because it felt good. So one reason God gave us his word was to reveal truth to us, truth about things that we wouldn't be able to figure out on our own. And that includes truth about him. It includes truth about us. It includes about truth about the world we live in. It includes truth about the future. It includes truth about sin and the consequences of sin. The truth about salvation. Many other things. This is all part of God's word. God says his word is truth. He is the God of truth. We need to pay attention to the truth. And so today, for just a few minutes, I want us to think about some things God's told us about ourselves and about sin. The truth about ourselves, the truth about sin, and especially sexual sin. Let me say this first. It's important to, I think some people think God's kind of arbitrary, that God's some kind of cosmic being up there on his throne and he just kind of makes arbitrary decisions. Oh, I think I'll make this right. I think I'll make this wrong. I think I'll let him do this. I don't think I'll let him do this for no, no good reason. But that's not true. God's not up there saying, I know they'd really enjoy sex, but I'm not going to let them have it except maybe during marriage. That's the only time. No, no, no. God's not like that. His commands are designed to protect us. Do you understand that? When God gives a command, it's not arbitrary. He's protecting us from harm and he's giving us joy and peace and well-being if we'll just do what he says to do. Now, we can't do that apart from him. He has to enable us to do that, but he's willing to if we're willing to trust him. But God's not capricious, guys. He's the one who made us. He engineered us and he knows what's best for us. Do you remember how Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden? That's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 4, we read, The serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan lied to Eve, and he essentially implied to her, God is holding out on you. You'll have a lot more fun in life and a lot more personal fulfillment in life if you just do it my way. And of course, he wanted to make her think it was her way. Just do it your way, Eve, not God's way. And you know what? Satan's still lying to people with the same old lie. He knows how to appeal to the desires of our flesh. He knows how to lead people to destruction. He's doing it on a breathtakingly massive scale in our country today, in our world today. But listen, guys, God is the one who created us. God is the one who engineered us. He's the one that made us male and female. He's the one who created sex. He knows what will bring long-range joy and happiness and fulfillment and life and peace. And he knows what will bring bad outcomes, bad consequences, horrible regrets, death and destruction. And he's not hiding that truth from us, guys. He reveals these things to us in his word. It's there for us to see and read. For example, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, 
it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. A little later in verse 7, he wrote this, I wish that all were as I myself am. In other words, Paul was single. And he said, I wish you could be single too because you could really devote yourself to the work of the Lord this way. He explains that later on in this chapter. But he says, each of us has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You hear what Paul's saying here? You see, if it were okay when you had sexual desires before marriage, before you'd entered into a married covenant, if it were okay just to indulge that, just to go ahead and live together or whatever, then these words wouldn't make sense. He says because of the temptation to have sex outside of marriage, go ahead and get married. He says better to get married than to burn with passion. He doesn't say if you're having to deal with passion and lust, well, you can just find somebody that will live with you and, and that'll give you a sexual outlet for those sexual appetites. No, no, no. He doesn't say that. He says, get married. That's the solution. Now, we need to add to this. This is not all that God has to say about this subject. We may need to be reminded Paul's going to make that clear in other places too, of course. There are certainly those times when for many different reasons, marriage is just not an option. What do we do about temptation then? Well, we do the same thing we do with other temptations. God's given us several ways to deal with temptations. Jesus told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's a good prayer. That's a good daily prayer. And we need to memorize and meditate on God's word, especially the parts that will give us strength to overcome temptation. There are lots of valuable scriptures there. And we pray, God, give me grace, protect me, keep me from Satan, help me to recognize situations I can get into. And then when we do recognize those situations, we need to stay away from them, right? If you know a situation is going to lead you into temptation, stay away from that situation. Another thing we can do that's very important is ask a godly mentor, maybe, or maybe a godly friend, or maybe a relative to hold us accountable. We need to talk to people about what we struggle with and Ask them to ask us questions and talk to them about their struggles. That'll help. Jesus has given us all kinds of weapons that we need. Of course, he himself will fight through us. But, but listen, you can't just turn it over to him. He, he requires us to fight. You can't delegate back to him what he's already delegated to us. He says, you stay in that battle. You fight. You've got a spiritual war to fight here. But he's given us weapons to overcome any kind of temptation, including temptations to sexual sin. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Paul's remedy is not just to have sex with a person we're being tempted to have sex with. It's to get married unless there are biblical reasons why that's not possible. And then we simply must not have sex. And we use his weapons to give us victory there. You may already be aware of this, but there are two Greek words, two words in the Greek language that are often used together, actually, that both describe sexual sin, but they're different words and they mean something a little bit different. One of them is moikia, moikia, and it's usually translated in our Bibles, in our English Bibles, adultery. It's a more narrow word. It refers to the sin of a married person, a married person who's having sex with someone other than his or her spouse, moikia. 
But there's another word, and it's a more general word, pornea. And pornea refers to all kinds of sexual sin. And so it's usually translated immorality in our translations today. The old King James Version translated it fornication. Now, the point I'm making here, and I think God is making with these two words, if sex outside of marriage between two people who are not already married were okay, in that case, only adultery, moakia, would be prohibited. You see what I'm saying? Only that would be sinful. But God reveals to us that both moakia and pornea are sins. They're both sins. So, for example, in Matthew 15, Jesus lists some sins that come out of our heart. He said, for out of our heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and there's moakia, sexual immorality, there's pornea, theft, false witness, slander, and so forth. List some sins. But he uses both words together, and both are part of a list of sins that Jesus gave. They're both sinful. They're both wrong. They're both prohibited. 1 Corinthians 6, we read, flee from what? Pornea, sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's sin. Very clearly, sexual immorality, pornea, is sinful behavior. That's sex before marriage. Both Moikia and Pornea are listed in Galatians 5 as works of the flesh, along with other sins like idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, heresies, things like that. So over and over again, God makes it clear that both Moikia and Pornea, adultery and all other sexual behavior outside marriage, are sins. And these things keep us out of God's kingdom. We must not justify any kind of sin. The only way to get into God's kingdom is to repent of sin, and that includes these kinds of sins, sexual sins. We have to repent of them, forsake them, turn from them. So when we try to use sex just as a way to satisfy our lusts and just do something that feels good and then try to convince ourselves, well, it's okay in my case, what we're doing is sinning against God and we're ruining a powerful, beautiful thing for which God created sex. God created sex to be a beautiful thing. Sex between a husband and a wife in a marriage covenant. It's designed to make us one. It's the closest thing we can experience to the unity of the Holy Trinity. It's also the way God's chosen to describe his relationship with us. You remember how Paul said it to the Ephesians? He quoted a verse from Genesis. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. And then Paul said, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. You hear that? He's comparing our relationship as a husband and wife to the relationship with Jesus and the church. And we must not mar that picture. When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about marriage and divorce, he said this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting two Old Testament verses from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And he's saying, this is marriage. This is what it's supposed to be like, a man and a woman in covenant relationship with each other. Someone might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sometimes, even in the Bible, it looks like when you read it that two people just had sex and it seemed to be a good thing. For example, when Abraham's servant brought Rebekah to Isaac, you remember that episode? We don't read anything about a wedding there. The Bible just says he 
took her into his mother's tent where they obviously had sex. And it's true, nothing was said about a wedding at that moment. But listen, you got to read this carefully and you got to think about what it means. Immediately from that time and over and over again in the Bible, Rebecca is referred to as Isaac's wife, not his girlfriend, not his live-in, his wife. And being his wife implied a marriage commitment. The Bible is very clear about this. This also is something really important, though, and I don't want you to miss this either. A wedding, listen, guys, please pay attention. Some of you really need to hear this. A wedding does not have to be an elaborate event. It doesn't. When two people enter into a marriage covenant with each other and then begin to present themselves to the public as husband and wife, and they're in covenant together and under God, they're married. God's not the one who decided we have to have elaborate weddings. That's a cultural thing. It's not a biblical command that anybody has to have an elaborate wedding. That's true. Some weddings in the biblical times were very elaborate. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with elaborate weddings. They can be very wonderful. They can be very beautiful. They can be very powerful. But please, don't let that override the marriage covenant, the whole concept of marriage. Weddings don't have to be elaborate. Weddings can be and many times should be very, very simple. In many places in the Bible where a man is simply said to have taken a wife. No mention is made of a wedding, much less an elaborate one. But the words to take a wife always imply that a wedding has taken place. It just doesn't have to be elaborate. Do you understand what I'm saying? It can be very, very simple. It just has to involve a covenant commitment for a lifetime. And it needs to be public, of course. They announce themselves as husband and wife. But we have a problem here, don't we? Because our culture has decided to make this really difficult for young people. There are many parents out there who don't want their kids to get married too young. There were previous generations, many of us maybe have heard of or know of, older people who got married very, very young. And then they started having kids. And then they faced the difficulties of life together as a team, as a family. And it was not easy, that's for sure. But they learned to face the tough times as a unit. My grandmother was 13 years old when she married my grandfather in 1911. That seems too young, doesn't it? Well, they had been married 72 years when she finally died in 1983. And listen, guys, it wasn't easy for them. They went through a lot of tough times together. Listen, it's not easy for anybody. Do you understand that? But for some reason, we decided it's a bad idea for a young couple to go through the early difficulties of life together. And so sometimes we think, oh, I got to finish years and years and years of higher education before I even think about marriage. Sometimes we feel like I got to establish myself in a career of some kind before I even think about marriage. And for most people, here's what happens. That kind of thinking means that they have resigned themselves to several years of just resisting the temptation to have sex if they want to live godly in Christ Jesus. But that's tough. And most just find themselves not willing to do it. So what do they do? They just start living together. It's going to be a long time before we can have, get married. So they start having sex with each other and hope that maybe someday it works out for them to get married after they've solved all their educational issues or after they've solved all their financial issues. But guys, listen, when we do it that way, we have it exactly backwards. 
Many of the great marriages of history started very young and worked through that education process, worked through the job and financial issue all together as a couple. I mean, it was, it was difficult, but it was powerful. And they grew in their commitment to one another and they grew in their oneness. And in the long run, it was a powerful testimony to other people too. And for some reason, we decided we don't want to do it that way anymore. We're getting, getting it backwards. Joseph and Mary are an interesting example in the Bible. The Bible teaches us something important about marriage and sex through Joseph and Mary. You remember, they were already betrothed before Mary conceived Jesus supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Betrothal was a little bit like our engagement period, except it was just as binding as a marriage covenant. And the couple did not have sex during that betrothal period. So in Matthew chapter 1, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. They were betrothed, but they had not had sex. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. To divorce her. They were in a binding commitment already, but they hadn't had a wedding. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. A beautiful passage of scripture. But we learned something there. To end a betrothal required a divorce just as to end a marriage required a divorce. So a betrothal commitment was just as binding as a marriage commitment, except they didn't have sex. Sex was for after the wedding, after the marriage commitment, after the betrothal period was over. Isn't that interesting? Now, why would God make it clear to us that sex is designed for marriage between a man and a woman and only for a marriage between a man and a woman who are in a married covenant together? Well, for one thing, it's because God's the one who made us, right? He's the one that designed us. He's the one that engineered us. He knows us through and through, and he knows what works in the long run. He knows. We don't. It's a little bit like, suppose you were talking to a group of automotive engineers in a big automotive company. These guys know cars inside out. And you're telling them, I don't care what you guys say. I really like root beer. And I think my car will like root beer too. So I don't see the big deal. I'm going to put root beer in my crankcase instead of motor oil. And I think that ought to be just fine. But you're not the expert, are you? You don't know what you're talking about. Those automotive engineers are the experts. They're the ones that engineered the car. They know what works. And the same way God engineered us. He made us. He engineers. He knows. He knows what works. He knows what brings good results in the long run. One of the reasons God knew we would need his word, the Bible, is because he knew there's a lot of truth we can't figure out on our own. We have fallen natures. We have this flesh that we're carrying around, and we're heavily influenced by our emotions. And we tend to want to do what feels good at the moment instead of thinking about long-range outcomes. Sometimes we just can't see the long-range outcomes very clearly. We don't want to see them sometimes. We just know what we want right now. Because sometimes if we just pay attention over a period of time, some of those long-range outcomes do get a little clearer. We can even see it 
on our own. God allows us to discover some of these things sometimes. Focus on the Family had a report that over a period of time, there have been several studies that have given us a glimpse of some of the problems that are associated when people just decide to live together. These studies have shown that cohabitation, living together, is correlated with greater likelihood of unhappiness and domestic violence in the relationship. Cohabiting couples report lower levels of satisfaction in the relationship than married couples. Women are more likely to be abused by a cohabiting boyfriend than by a husband. Children are more likely to be abused by their mother's boyfriends than they are by their husbands. Even if the boyfriend is their biological father, that's true. If a cohabiting couple ultimately does marry, they tend to report lower levels of marital satisfaction and a higher propensity to divorce. So those studies have found those kind of things just by looking at long-range results. Listen, God created most all of us to be sexual creatures. There's some exceptions, but most of us are sexual creatures. And he gave us the gift of sex. It's a beautiful gift. It brings joy and it brings oneness with one other human being, a human being of the opposite sex from us. And it's also, by the way, <laughs> the way he's designed to bring other little human beings into the world for whom the two of us share a responsibility of raising those little human beings and training those little human beings. So sex is designed by God as a good gift for us to enjoy with one other human being who is a person of the opposite sex with whom we've entered this lifetime covenant of marriage, period. Period. By the way, I know this is chasing a rabbit, but because of the times we're living in right now, I probably ought to at least address this briefly. If you're wondering if sometimes God may allow marriage between two people of the same sex in some situations, the short answer is no, not God. God does not condone that. Homosexual behavior is sin. If you want to check out my Bible studies on that, Romans chapter 1, uh, feel free. I've got a lot of information there about what the Bible has to say about sexual behavior between two men or two women. God has a lot to say about that. I've got a couple of studies called Dishonorable Passions from Romans chapter 1. You might want to check out. If you can't find them, let me know. I'll be glad to send you a link. But we're living in a culture and at a time when it's become very common for a young man and a young woman to decide to just move in together before they're actually married. Sometimes they try to justify this on a financial basis. Sometimes they think, well, we just need some time living together to know whether we're going to make a good match for marriage. And maybe that'll come later. Sometimes the young woman has been led to believe that she has to have a really expensive, elaborate wedding. And they know they can't afford that yet. So they just decide to live together until they can afford the wedding she wants to have. I remember one young man who wanted to postpone a proposal for marriage. He knew this, he wanted to marry this girl, but he wanted to postpone it. Why? Because he wanted to buy a really expensive engagement ring when he proposed. And he couldn't afford it. So he just postponed the whole thing. Listen, rings are great symbols of a covenant relationship. They really are. But they don't have to be expensive. Do you understand that? That kind of thinking is a result of pressure from our secularized culture. That's not from God. Lots of very happily married couples, including Vicky and me, by the way, wear very inexpensive rings. But in any case, whatever their logic, these days it's very common for people to just live together without being married. And they wonder, well, what's the big deal? Don't make such a big deal out of this. 
in the days we're living in, both the young man and the young woman probably know other people who've made the same kind of decision. They're living together. They're not married. And at the moment, it seems like things are working out for them, okay? And on top of this, some young people get to thinking like this. They'll say, well, we're really actually already married in God's eyes. So it's okay for us to have sex together. But they're not introducing themselves to others as husband and wife. Why not? Because they know down inside they're not really married. Marriage is a public covenant. It's not a secret, private little commitment you make. If you ask two people who are living together why they don't just go ahead and get married, sometimes, they may not say it out loud, but sometimes maybe the unspoken answer is, mm, I want to keep my options open. This relationship may not work out. I don't want to be bound if later on I change my mind about this person. That's very sad because many see the unmarried sexual relationship as kind of like a trial run to see if they're really going to be compatible in the long run. If it happens to work out that you're not compatible, I better put that in quotes, scare quotes, compatible, end quote. Well, we'll just call the whole thing off. But listen to me, please don't miss this, guys. No matter, listen, no matter how compatible you may seem to be at any given moment with another human being, I can guarantee you there will come a time in your relationship when you will feel very incompatible with that same human being. Did you hear me? Compatibility feelings come and go. That's one reason marriage is so important. It binds us together through the difficult periods when we might feel totally incompatible. When we might be tempted just to walk away from the relationship if it weren't for that covenant that we've entered together that's holding us together. You see what I'm saying? There'll be many times when two people who really did think they were compatible decide later on, eh, it doesn't look like we're so compatible after all. But listen, good marriages are the result of covenant commitment followed by lots of hard work. Do you understand that? If I begin to think about my relationship with another human being, like my relationship with a new vehicle that I'm thinking about buying, maybe a, maybe a truck or something, I've got a huge problem. Because if I'm about to buy a truck, I probably do want to test drive it. I want to see how it feels. I want to see how it runs before I make a commitment to buy it. See if it seems to be a good fit for me. That's fine if you're buying a truck. But it will not work with a potential life partner, guys. A wife is not a truck, okay? If you're thinking about test driving a potential spouse, whether it's your husband or your wife, potentially, the same way you'd test drive a potential truck, you don't understand human relationships. You're already in a big mess. If your attitude, guys, is, well, if she treats me right, or he treats me right, if he or she makes me happy sexually, if she looks good to me or he looks good to me, if she's a good cook, if she's happy doing my laundry for me, if he or she is good at X or good at Y or good at Z, you fill in the blanks, whatever's important to you, maybe we'll make it permanent someday. If that's the way you're thinking, you're already in trouble because you don't understand how human relationships work. You certainly don't understand marriage. Marriage is about loving somebody like Christ loved the church. And I don't think I have to remind you the church is not always that lovable, right? Of course not. Marriage is learning about being a servant to someone else. Marriage is learning how to treat a fellow 
fallen human being like we would treat Jesus and like Jesus treats us. Marriage is about commitment. Listen, during the tough times, commitment, it'll enable us to get through those tough times, come out on the other side with a relationship that's stronger than ever. Marriage is not about finding the easy way out, guys. There's no way a relationship outside those bonds of commitment can compare, prepare you for that. You understand that? You can't get prepared by finding somebody compatible and just hoping it'll work. You're going to have to work through the periods of incompatibility. But we spend so much time these days looking online and other places for that person who will be compatible with us. And usually that means we think they're going to meet our needs. But because of our fallen natures as human beings, and because of the weakness of our flesh, over time, I promise you, we will realize that person really doesn't exist. And sadly, some people go through several live-ins and maybe several marriages and divorces, and they keep on thinking, oh man, I have the worst luck picking a life partner. Some of them finally realize that there is no person who's really going to be compatible with them. No two people are compatible all the time. We all tend to be selfish. Even if we happen to find a wonderful person who seems really interested in us, in us, who seems to be willing to try to meet our needs because of our selfishness and because that person, he or she, is a human being also who's going to eventually fall short. Eventually. It's inevitably going to happen. So people who try living together first to see if they're going to be compatible are missing the whole point. They won't be compatible. There's no one who'll be compatible with you in the long run. Did you hear about the husband who went to his pastor to complain about his wife? And that's what he said. He said, Pastor, we're just not compatible anymore. The pastor said, what do you mean? And the husband began giving the pastor a long list of things that his wife was doing that made him unhappy. And he just went on and on and on. I mean, it was a long list. And finally, the pastor interrupted him and said, Good grief, man. If she's that bad, why on earth did you marry her in the first place? The man said, She wasn't like this when we first got married. The pastor said, So when you first married her, she didn't have all these problems? That's right. And now she has all these issues? Yep. So I guess what that means is being married to you has caused her to go bad. <laughs> Guys, in the long run, no two people will always be compatible. It takes a covenant commitment and a lot of hard work to make a great marriage happen. So what does that mean? What's a young person going to do? How do we find a husband or a wife? Well, first, we pray. We pray that God will lead us to someone who loves him and is committed to him just like we are. And of course, we consider different kinds of attraction. Physical attraction is important. Mental attraction is important. Emotional attraction is important. Spiritual attraction, attraction is important. And eventually, after a lot of prayer and conversation and time together, we may decide this looks like the person God wants me to spend my life with. And when both the man and the woman feel that way, and, and I guess I should add when godly friends and family members agree and confirm those feelings and help us see our blind spots, then eventually we enter into a marriage covenant together. And then, and only then, 
will God bless the sexual relationship? It has to be within the safety of a marriage covenant and a marriage commitment. And some of you might say, but, 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 but wait a minute. What if after I've said the vows, what if we've already had the wedding? Uh, what if we've entered the covenant and then we discover we're not really compatible? <laughs> I already said it. You won't be. You won't be. Not all the time. Eventually, you'll discover that no matter who you marry, you're not as compatible as you hoped you would be. You'll feel disappointed. There'll always be some of that. But if you're in Christ, by the love and grace of Christ, you will learn to be more compatible. You will work at becoming compatible. If you have a servant's heart, you'll learn to meet each other's needs. You'll learn to gather what it takes to get through the difficult times of life, the trials of life. And that love will grow. That's how God designed it. Unfortunately, there are way too many selfish, foolish Americans. Many of them have self-esteem that just goes through the roof. We have plenty of narcissistic people in our culture today because of the self-esteem movement. They think life's all about them. And they think that the right person, the person that they're compatible with, will just enjoy spending his or her life making them happy. Is that what the romance novels say? Is that what the movies communicate? We have to realize, guys, it's not all about us. It's all about Jesus. It's about two people following Jesus through the tough times and, of course, the good times of life together. Now, I realize sometimes that doesn't work. And some of you may be thinking, well, are you saying there's never a time for divorce? And some marriages, all marriages going to, well, God hates divorce, but I'm not saying there's never a time for it. That wouldn't be true. The Bible makes it clear that there are times when divorce is probably a better option than continuing in a marriage where one spouse has already broken the covenant and is just unrepentant about it. The Bible specifically mentions adultery and abandonment as two bases for possible divorce. But having said that, which I feel like I have to acknowledge, most of the time we do it all wrong. We don't have time to get into that right now. That, that, that may be a good topic for a later study, but not right now. Let me just try to sum up what I've been trying to say. Listen, guys, sex outside marriage is always sinful. No matter how we try to rationalize it, it destroys the beautiful picture of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus never engages in intimate moments with us outside of his commitment to us. And our commitment to him. We're in an everlasting covenant with Jesus, right? Yes. And marriage illustrates that eternal covenant bond we have with Jesus. So sex outside marriage mars and perverts that beautiful picture. And the reasons people give for having a sexual relationship without a marriage commitment are always bad. They may seem good at the moment, but they're bad. Just a lot of rationalization, a lot of excuse making. We're good at making excuses. But what they turn out to be are just some feeble attempts to justify giving in to our lust in a way that God clearly forbids and leads to long-range bad outcomes. And please remember, rings and weddings do not have to be elaborate or expensive. And please remember to engage in sexual activity while we postpone a marriage covenant in the name of furthering our education or of getting a great job first, that's getting the cart before the horse. God blesses a marriage covenant. He can also bless abstinence when marriage is not possible, but he can never bless sex 
outside of marriage covenant, guys. He won't do it. All right. What if you've already been having sex outside marriage? Listen to me. You need to repent. That means stop having sex until you get married, publicly married. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to give you grace to live life his way. And yes, if you've been having sex outside marriage, there will be consequences. There will be some unpleasant consequences for the sin you've already committed. Sin always brings bad consequences. But listen, it won't be as bad as the consequences will be if you just refuse to repent. Get worse. And God would love to start blessing you. But he can't. And he will not bless you until you repent of the sin. Sex really is a beautiful gift from God to us. God's the one who invented it. God loves sex. He wants us to have sex. He wants to bless it. But only when we enjoy the gift the way he commands between a man and a woman who are in a covenant of marriage, period. So I just want to urge you right now, make a commitment to follow God's instructions and only God's instructions. If you do that, one day, I promise you, you'll look back with great joy and no regrets from this time on. Maybe regrets for what you've done up till now, but no regrets if you'll repent of sin and do it his way. And you'll see what God has done when you look back on it. It'll be good. It's going to bring him lots of glory when you do it his way. And by the way, it'll bring you lots of joy too. And that's why we're here, isn't it? Just to bring him glory. Yes, that's what'll do it. Let's pray. Father, you know the person that's watching this video right now. You know all about us inside out. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know what motivates us. You know what our temptations are. You know what we struggle with. You know the weaknesses of our flesh. You know all about our rationalizations. You know all about our excuse making. Lord, you know about our sin. We want to come to grips with it, Lord. We, we don't want to deny it. We don't want to cover it up. We don't want to pretend you're not here. We don't want to pretend it's not real. We want to confess our sins to you. And we thank you, Lord, that when we confess our sins and forsake our sins and repent of our sins, which you enable us to do, we can't do on our own, we know. But when you enable us to do that, Lord, we know that you always forgive us our sins and you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when we start doing things your way, you bless it incredibly beautifully. So, Lord, help us from this moment on, regardless of our past, whether our past is relatively clean when it comes to sex or whether our past is really messed up when it comes to sex. From this point on, Lord, help us to live life your way. Help us to make the tough decisions to do it right and to use sex as the beautiful gift you've given us in a marriage relationship only between a husband and a wife. Lord, help us to ingrain that into our brains, ingrain that into our hearts, ingrain that into our lives, and help us to communicate that with others. Father, we know we're living in a world that doesn't want to hear your truth. And many, many people have suppressed your truth in their unrighteousness. Many have chosen to reject you and reject your truth. And you've given them over to debased minds in many cases. Many people are, have, are claiming to be wise when they're really fools. So, Lord, help us not to listen to those people, but help us to listen to you and your truth in your word and not be deceived, not be misled so that eventually we can look back with as few regrets as possible and we can in the process bring you as much glory as possible and we know as a result you'll give us a great amount of just wonderful sheer joy so thank you for the way you've worked it out thank you for the way you've made us thank you for the way you've engineered us 
Thank you for making everything just exactly the way it should be. Forgive us our sins. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for what you've done through us, for us through Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.